Karl Marx wrote, It is not consciousness of men that determines their being, but, on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. In other words, human nature doesn't exist. Everything is a social construct. Biology doesn't make a difference. Evolution doesn't make a difference. Heredity doesn't make a difference. Instead, all our personality traits, our impulses and morals, our ways of thinking, feeling, and interacting are arbitrary. Powerful people create society, and society creates us. Anything we might think of as human nature can be changed if only you have power. Simple, easy, effective, right? Of course, it's nonsense. Humans have a nature, and it can't be changed, only corrupted and damaged. But this is the reason why totalitarians hate biology so much, and why they hate psychology even more. It's dangerous not only because it contradicts their ideology, but also because it risks exposing their own psychopathology. This is the subject of a short chapter in Lobachevsky's book, Political Panorology, which we'll be discussing today. This is The Truth Perspective. I'm Harrison Cayley, and joining me are Ilan Martin and Corey Schink. Hello, everyone. Hi, everyone. So I think it was a year or even more, uh, it's been a year or more since we last devoted a show to Ponderology on The Truth Perspective, but I think the time has come, and this will be the first of many more. And today we're going to be talking about a short chapter, might even be the shortest chapter in the book, on psychiatry and psychology in pathocracy. Pathocracy being a system of government ruled by people with personality disorders. Um, we won't be getting into a lot of the background information. Maybe, you know, at certain points we'll give a little bit of background, but really if you want to find out all the background, uh, read the book, because everything that comes later on the book is kind of premised on parts that come before it, and it's impossible to just talk about everything in the book when you're discussing a portion of the book. It would just, you know, we'd have to read the entire book, and then what would be the point? So, pathocrats or totalitarians don't like biology. And we've seen a hint of this in the news, um, in just current events over the last year or so, with the rise to fame of Jordan Peterson, for example, and his repeated warnings that they're coming after the biologists next. And what he means by that is, um, that from his perspective and the, the area that he focuses on, this kind of postmodern neo-Marxism, neo is that these people have an ideology with certain fundamental core axiomatic beliefs about human nature or the lack of human nature, and that affects not only their approach to education and their own philosophy, but also the policies that they end up promoting and even writing and the battles, the ideological battles they get into, into on the news, on university campuses, and um, in newspapers, and everywhere they have any sort of influence. And what Peterson would say is that the reason that they don't like um, biology is because basically the biologists say certain things, certain facts, that demolish their position. Because you can't believe that, you can't believe in science and at the same time believe that gender is a social construct, for instance, because the two are incompatible. One is right, one is wrong, 
And the only way to believe that gender is a social construct is to believe or to not believe in the facts. So you have they have to attack um, constantly, and they they cannot cede any ground to what is just very basic scientific knowledge. Now, one of the things that Peterson doesn't talk about so much is what we're going to be focusing on today, and that is the role that psychology and psychiatry play in that. Because he might, he would be just as correct to say that they're coming after the psychologists next, in general, and um, not even with a, with a particular reference to biology. Because as Lobachevsky discovered very early on in his career, and for the entire the entirety of his life living in Poland during the basically the communist era there, psychology is the most censored and the most dangerous science to a totalitarian ideological system. And why that is the case is something that we will be getting into. So to start out, I want to just ask you guys if anything jumped out at you in this chapter while you were reading it. Well, there are a number of things that he broadly gets into that I felt were directly relevant to the types of things that we're seeing, especially here in the U.S. and in the West, uh, over these past few years and, and few decades. There was one quote that jumped out at me, in particular, that gave me food for thought. He writes, Controls are exceptionally malicious and treacherous in the psychological sciences in particular, for reasons now understandable to us. Written and unwritten lists are compiled for subjects that may not be taught. This is what you were intimating a moment ago in your intro, Harrison. And corresponding directives are issued to appropriately distort other subjects. This list is so vast in the area of psychology that nothing remains of this science except a skeleton picked bare of anything that might be subtle or penetrating. So uh, we're going to get into some of the uh, biological and, and social lists of things that are verboten uh, in the U.S. a little later, I think. But this paragraph definitely jumped out at me. And... Um, I don't think that, that they exist as such. I think that there is a, a type of a, a groupthink, the psychological elites, the people who write the manuals and, and the handbooks, the, what is that, the DSM mm -hmm. uh, books that are unspoken, but that are kind of adhered to in a subconscious way by many of the people who hold positions of power in various institutions, like the... Uh, National Institute of, of Health, and among others. Uh, so I, I do think that it's, it's a kind of a, an unconscious um, adherence to subjects that shouldn't be looked into too closely or get poo-pooed uh, right off the bat because they don't fit into a, a prescribed uh, list of, of ideas that are acceptable. And I think it exists very much on that level. Well, I think just to... To take that apart a bit, uh, we need to clarify uh, or differentiate two different phenomena. Mm -hmm. Because what Lobachevsky is talking about is, he says they're 
Well, he's talking about an actual pathocracy like the Soviet Union, where written and unwritten lists exist. Mm -hmm. So there actually would be a list. It would be the same thing in, in a place like, um, you know, what used to be called the Islamic State of Syria and the Levant, an actual totalitarian system that exists, that is totalitarian in nature. What, what you're talking about is more of a, this, this unconscious internal sensor is more a product of a hystericized society, what Lobachevsky would call. That would be one that is at risk of becoming a pathocracy, but is not yet a pathocracy, you know, as defined by Lobachevsky. Like, Lobachevsky talking about the full shebang when he's talking about a pathocracy. This would be a totalitarian system where everything is controlled, where every position of authority from, the, from your local village, your local town council, and even lower than that, every neighborhood is occupied by a, by a, um, a representative of the political party that rules the entire country. And it's this, this enmeshed total network of control to the point where the person on the street, you can't walk down your sidewalk without wondering whether someone from the party is watching you and will report you to the authorities for, for uh, the wrong look that you give someone. They're slightly different for not, well, they're vastly different phenomena that will nevertheless share some phenomena, some characteristics in common. Like, for example, he, he gives the example later on in the chapter of the abuse of psychiatry for political purposes. And this would be, um, for example, as was used in the, in the Soviet Union and in the satellite Soviet um, communist countries, the use of a psych psychiatric diagnosis as a way of putting away political dissidents. So these would be just political dissidents with no psychological abnormalities who are labeled by an official psychiatrist as being um, let's schizophrenic or some other category of mental illness and then confined to a psychiatric ward as just a, a substitute for putting them in prison, just an excuse to get them out of the way. And he, Lobachevsky mentions that the, this sort of thing, calling someone, like uh, accusations of someone being mentally ill and using that as a, as a way of getting them put in prison, or, or not in prison, but just uh, taking them out of regular society, is used in practically every country that has psychiatric institutions. It's a, it's a universal problem that then becomes actual policy, actual government policy, or even maybe, if not official um, and explicit policy, than an implicit and commonly agreed on but not publicly acknowledged policy of putting away dissidents because or using the psychiatric system. So we have every country would have examples of the abuse of psychiatry, but not to the level and not to the to the um, systematic degree that like the Soviet Union would have had. Um, so I think that that's the that's a clarification. So when we're talking about like the DSM. Um, well, and, and it's the same thing in the media, where you have this unconscious or unstated abiding of certain rules and biases that then has the effect of being a form of censorship, but there's no government censor telling you you can or can't say it. It's just commonly kind of accepted. And we, we see this in the news, or we've seen this really rise to prominence in the last year and a half, where you can just tell that the media is following a script, a script that no one is necessarily giving them, 
unless like um, like that that one news organization that has like thousands of local subsidiaries where they literally just gave the same script to everyone, and that's that's where you get those clips that are on like the Daily Show and that show up on on your social media feeds of all these different talking heads on the media saying the same soundbite, the same um, the same sentences, exact same, like just reading from a script. Um, well, that's but that that's a part of the, just the corporate nature of those enterprises, but. Uh, aside from that, when everyone is just following the same general idea, that's like this narcissistic bubble reality that forms around certain ideas when people go crazy. Like his, it is a mass hysteria. It's a social contagion that is targeted in the last year and a half, most primarily against. We, well, we've seen examples of it against um, Bashar al-Assad, against Vladimir Putin. Probably the 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 most demonized and maligned human being on the planet and of course donald trump and i'd say that um at at the very least trump gives reasons for or trump's behavior and his public statements like provide the the latch to or the hook to latch onto because he actually does say and do ridiculous things so at least it's at least that's understandable whereas with with a guy like putin or even assad there isn't much of a hook. The hook is has to be manufactured and created either through just blatant fiction, like literally making things up, or by this mental gymnastics of interpretation that then creates something out of something entirely different. Mm-hmm. So, and, and extreme repetition, I would yeah. add. Uh, I'd just like to kind of touch on what kind of uh, combines the the hysterical process with the pathocracy or how they blend together. Um, and Lubachevsky talks about that being a revolution, that the that pathocratic government will come about after the hysteria reaches to such a pitch that um, revolutionaries end up taking power by force. And I just wanted to talk about how these revolutionaries have have two fundamental reasons, it seems to me, that they uh, attack and just uh, completely subject the psychological and biological sciences um, uh, to absolute uh, scrutiny and to eradicating any sort of you know real uh, critical thought about the psyche and about human development. And it seems to me that one of the reasons is that these revolutionaries are, for the most part, probably the worst <laughs> examples of human character. You know, they're, for the most part, they're, they're violent, they're paranoid, they're schizoidal, a lot of them. They're willing to do anything to come to power. They, ha- they no doubt, you know, looking back on, the, you know, the Soviet Union, you look at Lenin and Trotsky and all of those various revolutionaries, dif- different student revolutionaries, they have skeletons in their closets. They don't want anybody to analyze their power platform based on their actual character because that people would probably be revolted, disgusted. And on a, another note, they also they don't want people to have access to the information that would be required for them to grow and to prosper and to, to um, evolve as a society because that would negate their power over them. So they use terror and they use all of these different ways of controlling society because that's what that's what they want. That's their primary goal based on numerous, you know, biological and psychological mm-hmm. deficits. Mm-hmm. 
that uh, Lobachevsky attests to, you know, throughout his book, the different uh, character defects, uh, brain lesions, and all sorts of things that that for a pathocrat who has such an exalted self-image, so narcissistic that they believe they can dictate to society, to the world, to reality, what reality really is, they to them, even a mere mention of them having any sort of defect will can, could lead to your death. That's the, I think that is like a fundamental biological reason they have an imperative to crush the, the, the real functioning social sciences and to divert it into their, you know, airy, fairy, ideological um, realm where they can maintain this sense of, uh, of power, of utopia, uh, that they are, you know, the kings of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that's the main point, I think, of this chapter is that the reason that, that pathocrats target um, psychology so hard is because it is within psychology that the, the possibility exists of, as Lobachevsky puts it, diagnosing the system and thereby potentially defeating the system because that is their greatest weakness of being exposed for what they are. Having their ideology exposed as a mask that is covering over just basic psychopathology. And if that were to be the case, and if that were to be popular, popularly understood, they wouldn't have a leg to stand on. They wouldn't have their ideology as a, um, a fallback in order to, to give them a sense of legitimacy. It would be literally like people finding out that the mafia are ruling the country, and ruling the country completely, not even just like colluding with certain elements of the, of the government or the security services. Literally, the mafia, the government is a mafia, the entire like from the top to the bottom um and the the way lobachevsky approaches this idea in this chapter is to show the kind of prohibitions on the practice of psychology and then what that suggests about the system itself because of those prohibitions so elan you read that quote um to start out with about the the psychiatrist's curriculum being really limited. Um, to, to read a little bit that expands on that, he says that a, psychi a psychiatrist's required curriculum contains neither the minimal knowledge from the areas of general, developmental, and clinical psychology, nor the basic skills in psychotherapy. And as a result, only mediocre um, scientists really get, uh, really get anywhere in the system, and even the good ones can or could, because, uh, you know, this has changed in the last 30 years, um, even the good psychiatrists become a psychiatrist, he says, after a, a course of study only a few weeks long, or a couple months. So basically, you know, you, you go in for essentially what would be not even a full term of your first year of university, and there you go, you got your papers, you can practice. And what better way to keep people, or to keep the, the, the entire psychological and psychiatric community from being truly effective than to totally limit their um, their professionalism and the, their competence, basically. It's, they basically kept the entire field stupid in order to prevent it from progressing to the point where it could diagnose the system. Now, ironically, well, they were successful and unsuccessful at the same time. They were successful because they managed to keep a lid on the development of these sciences to such a degree that the communist system was in uh, in operation in various countries for anywhere from like 40 to 70 years before the, the entire system fell down. And even after that, there were remnants, of course, but 
um, you know, by, by 1990, it, it was pretty much done. And he continues a bit after that quote that I just read, giving some specific examples. He says that the prohibitions on psychology and psychiatry engulf depth psychology, the analysis of the human instinct of substratum, together with the analysis of dreams. And just to get into those a bit, depth psychology is commonly traced back to Freud, Jung, and Adler, because those were the first psychiatrists to get into the issue of the unconscious. So today, depth psychology would be anything dealing with the, the, you know, the depths of the human unconscious. Um, so that has, that has grown kind of um, wider than the realm of just Freud and Freudian and Jungian um, psychoanalysis. Like today, we would be able to include under depth psychology, like we mentioned last week, the, the kind of system one and system two ideas, the idea that there are unconscious drives and motivations that are influencing human behavior. It is not just conscious rationality. There is more to it, and it's hidden in the murky depths of the, the subconscious mind. And that gets into why analysis of dreams, he says, was was basically outlawed in, in psychology, because analysis of dreams is um, a, a look at that subconscious, at the you know the signals given to the conscious mind from from the subconscious mind, and then the probably the most important the the analysis of the human instinctive substratum for Lobachevsky, what that what the instinctive substratum is 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 our entire phylogenetic evolutionary history that has provided us with our human nature. And that would be from the, just the, the very basics of human consciousness and psychology. So that would be like our, the, the way in which we um, have, you know, what, what are called associations. So the, the way the mind works to connect certain ideas, um, memory, because memories are a type of association, and instinctive and emotional functions like the, the common situations in which emotions are triggered and manifested in in the body and in the, the in the human consciousness, and basically just all the things that make humans human, with reference to our psychology, and the reason that that's so important is that it is by studying the anomalies of the instinctive substratum where we approach the you know, the realm of psychopathology and personality disorders, um, because according to Lobachevsky's perspective, personality disorder would be some kind of defect in the emotional instinctive substratum of human consciousness. We can see that most uh, prominently in psychopathy, where there's this complete lack of this kind of emotional coloring of, of consciousness, because without that emotional nature, um, we cannot empathize or sympathize with other people. We cannot see other people as, a, as other people. Other people have no significance and no emotional significance to us. So there's that essential part of human nature that is is missing and twisted in a psychopathic individual. And he, of course, lists his breakdowns of various, what we'd call personality disorders. He called them psychopathies and characteropathies. But these are um, different types of anomalies within the instinctive substratum. So with what he called schizoid psychopathy, you know, we'd call that probably today, well, we do have schizoid personality disorder, we've got schizotypal um, traits, and we've got um, like Asperger's and various autistic disorders. Under this heading, this would be like a, a, a muted emotional nature, a kind of introversion that manifests in a particular way. And so you can have these kind of odd, strange individuals who, because of their like distance from 
their emotional distance from ordinary people can, in Lobachevsky's analysis, create ideologies that are slightly anti-human, that lack something essential about, um, about human nature and the complexities of human society and individuals. And those philosophies can then be manipulated and used by more ruthless individuals to essentially take over a nation. And just in, on the more local level, these kinds of individuals can be victims of intrigue and manipulation. And we see this, for example, in a lot of, well, in school shootings and in some even terror attacks where you have this, what seems to be this easily manipulatable individual who probably has some form of autism or you know schizoid personality who is manipulated in, into this situation by a, a more ruthless and manipulative individual like a psychopath and who who then um, commits an atrocity probably most prevalent in I, I think these days at least in the West in the in the school shooter um, you know phenomenon where you look at a lot of these guys in the past you know 10 20 years have just really matched the definition of schizoid um, as Lobachevsky gives it so that would be that's the instinct of substratum and then he also says that um, that consequently even research on the psychology of mate selection is frowned upon at best now we can see this very phenomenon on the left today in in Western culture where the the whole kind of postmodern neo-marxist movement is frowning upon any studies that point out a biological heritable difference between men and women and these are the kind of results that you get when you study mate selection for example because mate selection studies really show that there are biological kind of instinctive differences um, between the sexes and you get that or, or just to give an example of one of the, those findings it would be that um, for example women tend to to select mates that are at or above their social level, and men tend to select mates that are at or below their social level. And that seems to be a, a general trend that has been followed by humanity for as far back as we can go. Even genetic studies bear this out. And then one other area of science that, that he says were, was basically banned was twin studies, the study of twins. And he says that while lecturers can or, or could at his time refer to twin studies, like maybe in a lecture or something, they couldn't publish anything in print. So they couldn't publish any twin studies. So he says it was a shock when he went to New York in the early 80s. And he was walking down this, the, the street in Queens. And he says some young black man came up to him and handed him like a communist newspaper. And when he looked at the, at the newspaper, at the back of the paper, there was what he calls a quite well-worked-out summary of investigations performed at the University of Massachusetts on identical twins raised separately. These investigations furnished empirical indications for the important role of heredity, and the description contained a literary illustration of the similarity of the fates of twin pairs. And then he comments, How far ideologically disoriented the editors of this paper must have been to publish something which could never have appeared in the area subjected to a supposedly communist system. So here are these American communists talking about twin studies, having no idea that if they were to actually to go to a communist country, they would never be able to even read that information. And well, he, he talks about that a couple times in this chapter, the, just the disconnect between the foreign 
kind of pro-communist propaganda in the West and how far removed that was from reality and how he'd, he'd talk to people and, uh, you know, about communism and they'd, they, they'd be sure that in communist countries that psychiatry and psychology must be flourishing and, the, you know, the sciences must be great and they must have good social services, you know, providing psychological care to people that need it and, like, mentoring to young people and, and, and he'd kind of burst their bubbles and say, you know, all that stuff is banned. You know, we, we can't, we're not allowed to do anything that, like that's, you, you'd get taken away to a dark place for even talking about those things. And they'd be, all the people he talked to in New York would be shocked. It's like, oh, why is that? And well, and that's the question that he's setting out to answer. Why is that? It's because all of these things have something in common in, in what they are preventing people from knowing and from coming to know. And that gets to the big one. He said that the study of psychopathy in particular was totally verboten. You could not publish any studies on psychopathy whatsoever. It was like a complete blackout on that subject. And, and why? You know, why would they ban that? Well, it's because psychopaths in such a system rise to the top. So they would not allow uh, a description of themselves to get into, first of all, the academic world and the, the professional like, psychiatric community and from there into the general population. That would just be too dangerous. Well, yeah, the psychopathy is what gives these systems the that distinct sadistic edge that you know differentiates them from so many other um, you know governmental systems. Well, that's what separates a pathocracy from you know just kind of like a uh, you know a crumbling uh, social order. But I just wanted to go back to something that you were talking about earlier when you were discussing the just the differences between the different character disorders and normal people. So in the book, uh, Lobachowski discusses the fact that in this chapter, he says that these, uh, these uh, pathological individuals consider themselves normal and mm -hmm. they consider normal people abnormal. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the, the trajectory of Western society today, you just you look at the fact that Jordan Peterson has come out and he states the most banal, you know, <laughs> fatherly advice, and society goes absolutely nuts because they think that he is uh, the devil incarnate. They, mm -hmm. you know, he is abnormal. The people that he's speaking to, that he's giving just basic advice to, are abnormal. And I think that one of the issues that separates the normal from the pathological is the fact that normal people, they accept certain conditions, they accept the mundane life that, you know, that we have, that, you know, we work and we, you know, have families and, you know, we, we die, but we have these emotional connections. We learn um, as we go, we face challenges, we face challenges together, we find uh, comfort and integrity in facing challenges together. But, you know, in a mundane sort of way, you know, it's much more gradual, you know, you look at families that, you know, over generations, they go from poverty, you know, but, you know, maybe one member of the family works his way into a better paying position, and then, you know, then hit that branch of the family is, you know, in a a, a better economic uh, position, but you know, over time, that you know, that's just what people do. You just work and you live, and it's mundane and it's normal. But to the pathological uh, individual, it's life lacks that that dimension, and everything is becomes some form of activism. 
You know, they become activists and for some of them for, you know, what could nominally be good causes, but they are agitating based on this defective instinctive substratum that we mm -hmm. discussed. And that's all that they can do for the normal, the normal human world for them it looks like some sort of a, you know, it's, it's, it's ugly. It's disgusting. It's something to be frowned on. It's the you know the deplorables. They're the the weirdos. The the peasants. We need to go save the peasants, or we need to educate the stupid lower classes. And that bent is what really drives that hystericization process. It seems to me. And that, and then you end up with the kind of situation that we have today, where people can't even speak about you know, basic fundamental psychological issues without mm -hmm. people feeling like you've, you're attacking the social justice movement because so many people, that's all that they have. For a mm -hmm. lot of people who have been indoctrinated, they, they've been brain damaged to, to a certain extent by these social justice warriors who, that's their drive, that's their life. They mm -hmm. don't, outside of that, there's no meaning. There's no, you know, they, they don't have a, a foundation to draw on. Mm -hmm. I want to make another differentiation in, in what you're saying, because I think there are two streams of, of people, or there's two, two separate phenomena that are going on there, and, they're, and they kind of get intermingled. And this is kind of referencing back several chapters in the book, where Lobachevsky talks about the, the cycle of hystericization, and what, you, what, event, what basically happens in a society is that you get a, a hystericized kind of upper class. And we could think about that today. We could label them the establishment. So these would be people in the media. These would be fairly well-off, left-leaning politicians or, or just citizens. Um, you can get the same thing on the on the right, but in the left, it's really prominent and really noticeable. So you have this. Well, it really creates this kind of tribal bubble, where they they perceive themselves there uh, a certain way. They have their own worldview, and no one else really fits into it. So they have no real connection with the. With the the real working class or the people that they say that they represent or that they claim to represent, and they actually treat them with a with a, a certain amount of disdain, like you know, like Hillary Clinton calling Trump supporters deplorables. But at the same time, you have what is exacerbating that, and what is behind the surp the surface of many of the the more activist elements within that class, which is actual personality disorder psychopathology. And that's where you get this this really distorted worldview that that forms from the bottom up, like from the very nature of these uh, these people's um, consciousness, where they are looking at the world not only from this kind of self hypnotic you know bubble of this world that they've created, but from the, just the very way that they see the entire world. And these would be people like um, Sam Sam now describes in the inside the criminal mind. People with a criminal mind, they look at normal people, normal people who are con like relatively or even averagely conscientious and industrious, people like you said, who build their careers, who work hard, you know, starting a business, having just some degree of success. It doesn't have to be a huge degree of success. It's not like they're, they're you know, they, they, they necessarily go on to lead a Fortune 500 company or something, but just people with a, who establish a career or you know, make enough to to support their family or to lift themselves out of poverty and to to enter like the middle class. And they look at those people and they there's there's this strange kind of contradictory attitude that they have because on the one hand, it's it's as if they they want that for themselves, 
it looks as if they admire the, such people on the one hand, but but on the other hand, there is a, a disdain and a resentment towards those people because they want all the good things that those people have, but without doing any of the hard work. They seem like suckers. Yeah, those people are suckers. But, well, yeah. So for mm-hmm. the for the real like for the real criminals, not necessarily just people with with certain of these personality disorders. For the real criminal mind, yeah, they see those people as suckers for having to work for that. Whereas, like for the for the criminal, for the psychopath, they think that they deserve that just by virtue of who they are. They are so great. The world owes them. The world should give them that just because of of who they are. Just what a great person they are. They deserve it. So there's this disconnect, this rift in in well in the instinctive substratum between what a normal person does, how a normal person goes about life in general, and the kind of self entitled, arrogant position of the the personality disordered like criminal who who looks at them as a, a sucker and well and as a potential victim and target because they will take what you have. Um, either through like lowbrow common criminal methods or by you know gaining political power where they can do it using the 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 long arm of the state well it just seems that everything about western culture is kind of designed uh to induce the criminal mind to some degree in back, a, back that up <laughs> well in in the sense that you know our priorities Corey, you you mentioned uh, jordan peterson just getting the basics down is, has become this um, labeled as this uh, this far right cause in, in in Western culture. You're 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 not allowed to to think on the most basic levels of self improvement because it isn't what you think it is. It's not it's not self improvement. It's actually a, a far right cause of of some sort. Uh, so, we're but get- but again, that's coming that's coming from this tiny. Um, establishment class that presumes to speak for everybody when if you look at what's actually going on on the ground most ordinary people just live by that philosophy you know they they're trying to put their lives together they're trying to be successful they're trying to be conscientious conscientious and in general that tends to work you know if you're working at some you know dumb job you and and you just put your mind to it you'll you know you'll get promoted you might get a better position you'll you'll get paid more you'll get more responsibility like the way the world actually works um is way far removed than what the people for example criticizing jordan peterson the way they think the world works like they're the, they're just this tiny tiny group of um like strange radicals with these weird viewpoints that happen to have all of the all of the media on their side because they are the media so when you when you turn on when you turn on the news you'll get their perspective when it's you know it has very little in common with what normal people actually do and how they live their lives oh yeah I, absolutely uh, they not only have the media in control at this point but they also have academia academia in the US and in the west has become the platform uh, for these very vociferous voices that are meant to shut down any kind of thought in this direction so uh, you have that going on. Uh, you have a lot of people like Peterson paying attention to how academia is has become this uh, this platform for for liberal thinking and, and shutting down thought in all these different areas. You know, it reminds me of another portion in political panorology where, uh, having gone to university, Lobachevsky experiences uh, his first run in with a the professor who who basically 
spouts nonsense for hours at a time, a few times a week, and ideologically brainwashes those who are brainwashable in these classes. So this is a, uh, it's, it's, it's a textbook case of how uh, indoctrination is working in the U.S. among, you know, those young people here who are ostensibly going to expand their, their view of uh, the world and acquire self-knowledge, but are being uh, subverted mm-hmm. uh, by ideas that are nonsensical in the sense that they, they're not based on science, they're not based on fact and research, but are merely assertions, vociferous uh, emotional uh, assertions that, that are telling these young people, you should think this way or you are part of the problem. Well, who wants to be part of the problem? I think I'll just start to, to think this way. Mm-hmm. So th- this, is a, this is a major uh, kind of a cultural, societal effort in, in brainwashing that is in large part the cause of a lot of the demonstrations and the movements that, that, we're, uh, that we're seeing today. And it's quickly devolved into violence and basically shutting down by, by any means necessary uh, those voices that, that would seek to offer alternative, um, not even alternative, but just very basic uh, explanations or points of view of, of the types of problems that we're viewing in the U.S. and, and the West today. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really scary because the, the seeds of all this, like what Lobachevsky is talking about, are, have been growing for years in the States. So when you look at what's happening in the, in the universities and the rejection and the disdain for like, biological science, just as one example, that is a very, a, a very dangerous trajectory to be heading down. And you can see more seeds in, not in the sense of like a, a directive from above, but just in the way things are kind of organically growing, like... Well, to get to that point, I'm going to use an example from Solzhenitsyn. He talked about um, in the Soviet Union how the kind of criminal class, there was a, a specific phrase that the, the communists used for the class of just inveterate like career criminals. And I think it was something like the socially acceptable class or something like that, the socially acceptable criminal class, because these were the, the people that were... The, the, well, first of all, the only reason that they were criminal was because of the social construction that made them criminal, that that would be the previous society, the previous non-communist society. So that, first of all, that was the only thing that made them criminal. And so second, they were redeemable, because by creating the, the communist utopia, then they, they no longer had the, the negative effects of prior civilization that would make them criminal. So they were... And in essence, let off the hook. While they may have been arrested and they were arrested for various crimes, they were given the preferential treatment in the prison camps. They were the ones that ruled over the political dissidents that made up the majority of the, the people that were arrested. So the, the criminals had this elevated status within Soviet society. Now, there's something like that. There's the seeds of something like that going on today. Mm-hmm. And this ties into another phenomenon that Lobachevsky talks about regarding the diagnosis that, well, the pseudo-diagnosis that gets applied to psychopathy. So he says one of the ways that psychopathy is masked in a pathocracy is by the creation of a, of a diagnosis that is kind of broad enough that it, it combines several different mental disorders from, from various different causes, 
And then that is like the, the catch-all phrase that is applied to what would include the phenomenon of psychopathy. And we see that kind of, we, we've seen that over the last several decades in Western societies with the, the label of antisocial personality disorder, for example. So you have this diagnosis of antisocial personality. Well, the problem with that diagnosis is that there can be several different disorders going on or causes causing that antisocial behavior that would lead to that diagnosis. But there's no way just with that diagnosis to isolate the phenomenon of psychopathy. And so psychopathy kind of can hide within that diagnosis without being totally identified and recognized by the just the general population. It's like, oh, well, that's just an antisocial person. Well, oh, well, what's hiding within that antisocial personality disorder? Oh, well, there are psychopaths there. Oh, well, what's psychopathy? Oh, well, there are psychopaths that are not necessarily criminal or that don't, you know, don't fully or there are more there are more features to psychopathy than just antisociality. And even then you can get some psychopaths that don't really present with the, the typical antisocial personality you know, characteristics. They're much more cool and calculating. Well, they just don't totally resemble that diagnosis. Now, what, that, what I see happening in the kind of leftist activist movement is a similar excuse-making for the criminal class, the, for the criminal elements within their own movement. And there are a couple examples of this. One I just saw recently, it was one of those funny little clips of someone going around a, a big protest and interviewing people and asking them what they, what they think and trying to like poke holes in their, in their beliefs. So this one was about immigration. And so this guy was interviewing, asking questions to a couple of the people in this protest, and he asked something to the effect of, oh, well, so should MS-13 be let in the country? And the guy says, everyone should come. And so he says, should ISIS be let in the country? And the guy says, everyone should be allowed in. So this guy was saying that ISIS and MS-13 should be allowed in because it's bad to not let um, immigrants come to the country. So he was letting his, this, this guy in particular was letting his ideology, his ideological beliefs take on more importance than identifying a very dangerous criminal class who causes absolute mayhem in people's lives through murder and torture and kidnapping and drug smuggling and you know everything that just makes life miserable for the people around them and that's just written off not even acknowledged as being a problem and you see that as well in the protest movement itself where violence and the and just the the radical activist revolutionary approach is excused because of the good the great cause that the people are fighting for so that's why people on the left will make excuses for antifa and for punching nazis and for you know going to protests in masks with flagpoles and other weapons and causing again violence and mayhem and just kind of flattening out the the bell curve where everyone is perceived as just these these kind of blank slate personalities and given the same the same status it's the same social status within the movement at, without making the differentiation that some of these people are psychopaths or just criminals who are dangerous not only to society in general but to their fellow protesters because it's if they get what they want it's that kind of person that is then going to turn on the people within the movement who aren't like them 
So that guy that was saying, oh, bring MS-13, bring, bring ISIS in, I mean, he'd be one of the first people to be executed if there were, uh, you know, an Antifa revolution that took over the country. I mean, he'd be thrown to the wolves in short time. And, you know, what he'd be thinking, oh, well, geez, uh, what, what didn't I see? How didn't, how didn't I see this coming? Well, it's because you're a total freaking idiot. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't require much common sense to, to be able to see that happening, to look at the guy next to you and to say, that guy is scary, you know? Maybe I should avoid that person. Maybe we should do something to get people like that out of our movement. But no, it's, it's, it's that kind of person that is inspiring the movement in the first place and turning it in that direction. And that's what the, the people in the movement can't see because they are ideologically possessed. And because they think that they're the great inspiration for why they're doing this is more important than figuring out, well, than cleaning their own house, cleaning out their own house and their own protest movement and realizing that within them, like within that flock of sheep, there is a wolf and several wolves. And those are the ones basically running the show. You know, that's really fascinating when you bring up the, the topic of ideological possession, um, because I'd been reading about uh, a psychologist who's, uh, he, was, he was actually a physiologist, and people probably know his name, but uh, Ivan Pavlov, and his uh, research on dogs, and he basically, when you read about what he was doing, he gets an honorable mention in Lobachevsky's book, uh, but when you read about what he was doing, he was, a lot of his studies could be read as allegories for the the social chaos that was led up to and followed the uh, Russian Revolution um, that led to the eventual installment of you know Lenin in power and and then Stalin butchering everyone and cementing his own power. But um, he began his work on dogs in terms of understanding their their physiolo uh, physiology and the their temperaments in around 1900. And he continued that work for pretty much the, this, the rest of his life. He kept developing and developing his theories, uh, even as ever, all society was going to just going to pot all around him. His he uh, had one son die in a uh, war with the against the Reds, and then he had another son who had to flee into exile. His family was ruined, but he established that dogs. Um, had numerous different temperaments. This is what he, you know, talking about dogs. And he did do a lot of research on dogs, but it is clear that his goal was not to um, understand dogs, but was to understand the human's uh, psychical experience, as he put it. And he won a Nobel Prize in 1903 for, for these experiments, which actually helped uh, save him from the Soviet war, uh, machine. But he developed the, the theory of transmarginal inhibition, which basically is a step-by-step -step process of ideological possession. Um, it begins with his establishing that dogs uh, subjected to numerous amounts of stresses would succumb to basically ideological possession depending on their type and on their physical condition. And he named these three different stages, the equivalent phase, the paradoxical phase, and the ultra-paradoxical phase, which if you think about it in the allegorical terms of uh, people going to crazy all around you, 
it makes a lot of sense. So in the equivalent phase, um, all stimuli of whatever strength results only in the same amounts of saliva being produced. In the human being, a similar phenomenon is, there, is observed when a normal person is in a state of extreme fatigue. They report that there is very little difference between their emotional reactions to either trivial or important experiences. And now if you look at this in term, and you think of stimuli in terms of the stimuli from reality, from mm -hmm. your own senses, or the stimuli from your ideology, then you start to read a little bit in between the lines of what he's talking about. In the paradoxical phase, he says, when even stronger stresses are applied, the equivalent phase passes into the paradoxical phase. In this state, weak stimuli, or basically lies that this emerge in your head, they, they don't actually come from reality, can produce a stronger reaction than a strong hmm. stimuli, than reality itself. The reason for this is that the strong stimuli only increase the state of protective inhibition, while the weak stimuli can still produce positive responses. When a human being is in this stage, their behavior can reverse in a way that seems totally irrational to an outside observer. And in the ultra-paradoxical phase, this is where these uh, conditioned responses just reverse to negative responses and negative ones to positive ones. Or if you look at it ideologically, reality takes a backseat completely to your ideology and now you're accepting ms-13 into the into the country isis you know let's go hold hands with isis and go through a stole through the, in the park you know i'll bring my kids maybe mm -hmm. isis can babysit for me sometime and then the dog or person may suddenly find that they like what they formerly detested and loathe what they formerly loved. In this stage, the organism's response becomes opposed to all its previous conditioning, which was based on reality. Mm. Conditioning that had been, ever since you were brought up, you were conditioned in certain ways, but it was, and a lot of it was, you know, could have been, uh, contributed to psychopathological conditions, which he, he wrote on for his entire life, was trying to figure out how people could be conditioned in such a way that they became these paranoid maniacs like Lenin and uh, that lead the country to ruin. Mm. Um, it's really fascinating reading about his, his life because uh, he says that his unvarying goal um, was to bring the obtained objective results of physiological experiments to our subjective world. Only one thing in life is of essential interest for us, our psychical experience and understanding that experience and then also being able to show to to really rally the public behind this this completely objective reality that was behind the illusionary uh ideological mess that they'd gotten in and that he railed against his entire life until he died but and was protected due to his uh his the nobel prize all his of prominence. His, his prominence he was a you know the father of of russian physiology and he uh, was the first russian to win the nobel prize so neither lenin nor stalin could do really do anything to to harm him because he was for them he was just another part of the mask Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to, to comment a bit on those stages, um, the, the equivalent paradoxical and ultra-paradoxical, to bring in some of the things we've dis been discussing over the past few weeks. One would be when you're encountering reality, like the normal encounter of reality is, as Peterson would describe in the forum of action, we are seeing not objects, but um, basically valences of value. So we're seeing things that are more important, more, more valent to our consciousness than others. And in a normal example, um, for example, we used going through the woods and a snake, seeing a snake. So that snake is an, is an immediate threat. It presents itself as extremely valuable. 
in the negative sense because it, it is a threat. Now, we in normal society we would ha we would see that in our interactions with other people. Some people would put up our red put up some red flags and and make us suspicious or fearful for them for good reason because they there are dangerous snakes that live among us and that uh, we should be afraid of because you know they can do terrible things and they do do terrible things so through this process of transmarginal inhibition like you said an analogy can make or maybe even a direct connection can be made to what Lobachevsky talks about the hystericization cycle where there's a few a few processes and ideas that go together so there's this hystericization there's hypnotism and suggestion and and mental illness and these all seem to be connected to the point where um, that encounter with reality slowly gets turned upside down like Gurdjieff would say turns topsy-turvy upside down and we see uh, we see reality upside down so through this process whereas first of all the dangerous elements within society would be seen as threatening and as not beneficial or you know you you wouldn't want them in your life it gets to the point where that big threat has less of an effect on your nervous system mm -hmm. so so you're seeing it as less of a threat to the point where how did he describe it like a, a stimulus of uh, or a minor stimulus provokes uh, an increased reaction so you're no longer reacting in a in a heightened way to the actually dangerous parts of society, you're reacting to something that is in fact benign and harmless. So, for example, Jordan Peterson, societally, he is harmless. He is actually beneficial for society and for what he does to for individuals to get their lives together. He it shouldn't even be a blip on people's radar because he is no personality disordered threat. Like he is not one of the things that naturally we would be reacting to in such a negative way. So we have this paradoxical reaction where we see things and then we, well, it's basically blowing things way out of proportion. And you see that on the left all the time. They're making mountains out of molehills all mm -hmm. of the time. In every area of whatever they look at, they are finding mountains and there's pretty much all the time nothing there. And then it gets to the point where like the ultra paradoxical it might be correct me if i'm wrong cuz i i haven't uh, i haven't really internalized the ideas yet but where you would see this revolutionary figure for example and then you would see that person as the good person so then you would be idolizing a guy like lenin or stalin or in a more minor way idolizing like the violent people at antifa rallies where your perception of reality has been turned completely upside down and you're, you're seeing threats as um, as gifts and the, and the true gifts in society as total threats and that is how societies fail it. It, it's still remarkable to me that uh, those people who supported Hillary Clinton for the uh, presidential uh, election refused to see all the mounting data of how criminally she behaved mm -hmm. Like literally, she was a crim She is a criminal. She's an arch criminal of the worst kind, and it, and it wasn't only you know in in the the kind of goal of uh, enriching herself. She was arguably you know one of the architects of destroying Libya, mm -hmm. of of destroying Syria. Uh, so these are you know at, at a very basic level, political intervention, military intervention into these countries is 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 evil, and yet. You know, she, the liberal, the the champion of of women's rights, of of minorities, 
of uh, economic equality, uh, very superficial kind of assessment of what she's all about. And yet you have a whole population, a whole percentage rather of the population of people who just can't go there. Uh, and, and rather than assign uh, responsibility and, and guilt to her and her behavior, would you know, project all of these negative attributes to Trump, who is uh, trying to go in the other direction all appearances aside. So, yeah. And uh, you have this whole, uh, like you were saying, Harrison, there's this, um, you know, the, the term snowflake to describe many liberals uh, in the U.S. has pretty much describes it well. Uh, these people are hypersensitive to minor kind of um, perceived insults to their being. And, you know, they're not developing a, any kind of uh, natural uh, skin that would enable them to exist in the world in, in any kind of functional or, or normal uh, sense. Uh, and just getting back to what you were saying earlier, um, Corey, it's very interesting. You know, what Pavlov researched brings up the question of, you know, what are those stresses that are creating uh, this transmarginal inhibition? What are the things that are breaking down the resilience, the... Uh, natural, normal responses to things. And I would say a lot of it just has to do with the wholesale lies uh, on just virtually, you know, everything <laughs> that, that we're being, you know, that we're being exposed to, that we're being told about in the news. You know, this, this creates a, uh, a cognitive dissonance among many people where, where they're being trained to no longer recognize what truth is or being told that there is no truth. Uh, that's the answer. Uh, there is no truth, so so why even try to try to find it? Right, I think there's there's definitely that, um, but then there, uh, like he was writing about the after the the collapse of the Russian Empire, which had you know multi was was a multi ethnic empire. It had uh, class issues. It was trying to industrialize and modernize after the Crimean War, uh, which which was just a profound failure. To uh, you know the the Tsar just decided that it was time to institute great grand reforms in order to catch up with the rest of the world. And, you know, uh, Pavlov, he wrote in 1920, one of his uh, assistants demonstrated empirically that uh, the conditioned reflexes um, could produce experimental neurosis, um, specifically saying that life situations that excite us to a great degree, for example, in the case of cruel insults and terrible grief, while also requiring us to inhibit, to suppress natural reactions to them, often lead to a profound and long-lived disturbance of nervous and psychic balance. And, you know, he was writing basically about a black box. You know, for him, the nervous system, the, you know, the structure of the brain, the neurotransmitters, all that was, was, uh, was you know, there was, there were, uh, advances in that direction, but it was still pretty much a black box. You weren't quite sure what was going on in there. But at the same time, he was observing that these uh, just basic life, just issues with life can can cripple um, other, you know, weak-willed or, you know, un unhealthy animals that have what he termed like, you know, a poor temperament or a poor, you know, conditioning. Mm -hmm. And so, all of those issues that come with a large society have the capability of producing this kind of ultra paradoxical type event. But it's also when you add that criminal element that we were talking about that you get people who are actively 
adding to the chaos and who are actively manipulating it and who are actively seeking to institute their own delusions on everybody else that you get um, that, that revolutionary fervor that only leads to that pathocracy that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I think that the lies are, are a big part of it because like he wrote, you know, um, in the case of cruel insults that require us to inhibit and suppress natural reaction, because it's, you know, society or, you know, it's it's what we have to do in order to, you know, go to work or whatever. And we know that this war is based on lies or anything. That can have an effect, but that's only one of, of innumerable types of insults. Well, I want to read one little paragraph from Ponderology where he talks about Pavlov. So he says, Ivan Pavlov comprehended all kinds of paranoid states in a manner similar to this functional model that Lobachevsky described above, without being aware of this basic and primary cause. Um, I'll talk to that after I finish reading. He nevertheless provided a vivid description of paranoid characters and the above-mentioned ease with which paranoid individuals suddenly tear away from factual discipline and proper thought processes. Those readers of his work on the subject who are sufficiently familiar with Soviet conditions glean yet another historical meaning from his little book, Basically, that he was talking about Lenin a lot of the time through his description of these um, like paranoid dogs, because Corey and I have been reading this book, uh, Ivan Pavlov: A Russian Life in Science by Daniel P. Todes or Todes, um, which is the first comprehensive uh, biography on Pavlov ever written in English, and it's really good. But uh, just one small anecdote: uh, Todes says one of Pavlov's lifelong metaphorical habits was to view dogs as people, and people as dogs. Pavlov's thinking featured the constant conceptual interplay between experiences with, and understandings of, dogs and people. Thus he designed and interpreted lab experiments by reference not only to broader social and political issues, but also to his own personality and inner life. As he once put it, that which I see in dogs, I immediately transfer to myself, since, you know, the basics are identical. By the same logic, he also frequently transferred to dogs that which he saw or sensed in himself and the people around him. So <laughs> I just thought that was funny. So I want, we wonder what kind of dog Lenin was. But the reference that um, Lobachevsky made about the process um, that he was talking about, this would be another reason for how this kind of um, transmarginal inhibition plays out. Um, and this wouldn't be necessarily a, a kind of societal influence, but really on the personal, interpersonal level, because he's talking about functional paranoia, which is acquired through the influence of, say, um, paranoid parents. So the way that Lobachevsky describes it, it's like when you have a parent with either a paranoid personality disorder or paranoia that has been passed on like from their parents, that will have an effect on the, the child. And while he doesn't use the term, it's it sounds to me as if he's describing post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think would... I think PTSD would fall really closely in line with transmarginal inhibition as Pavlov described it. So there's this intergenerational effect on people that creates this this hampering of their thought processes and their emotional responses that then would be visible in kind of mass social movements. So a lot of the people that we might see in protest movements, for example, they might be the way they are, not necessarily because of things going on in the world and in the news, of course, that would have an effect, but because of their childhoods. Mm-hmm. And 
and not only that, other effects like like Adrian Rain describes, like all the things that contribute to or have an effect on your your brain's functioning and how that has its effect on the way you behave and on criminality. Well, yeah, I'd just like to add that that uh, reminds me of what Pavlov wrote in the paradoxical phase, uh, when strong stimuli only increase the state of protective inhibition, while weak stimuli can pro still produce positive responses. Mm -hmm. If you think about strong stimuli in terms of the reality that sh that's facing you, then it's easier to to turn to illusions that are comforting, comforting illusions that will protect, that are protecting your nervous system from basically, you know, shut down in the face of a reality that's just too, way too complex. You can't solve it. You there's you know social issues that are out of control. The the this illusionary kind of ideology that comes up is a palliative for your nervous system. Mm -hmm. Before we move on, just to flesh out that PTSD comment I made, it would be the the, the reason I see that correspondence would be like a, a soldier with PTSD responding to like a backfiring car, for instance. If it was really a gun, he would have that fear response to the 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 real stimuli, but he also has a paradoxical response. I think I'm using the word correctly to uh, a st a stimulus that isn't really a threat. So that's why you see people. Well, someone who doesn't understand what the person's going through, through would say, oh, you're overreacting. You're seeing something that's not there. That stimulus shouldn't be provoking the response that we see happening in you. Well, it's because something fundamentally has been miswired in their nervous systems where they, like Pavlov saw with his dogs, they are responding to minimal stimuli with an over-strengthened response. Well, I think uh, that would be a good point um, to talk a, a little bit about Adrian Rain and his research. He wrote a book called The Anatomy of Violence, The Biological Roots of Crime. And um, he had been looking into all the, the various types of um, biological, uh, neurological influences that go into creating a violent person who may uh, present as a psychopath or, or antisocial. Uh, and it's a really fascinating book because there are all kinds of considerations that he presents with a lot of data that um, that seems to be coming to the fore right now in, in, in awareness among some who are open to facts, open to science, and are willing to question what creates a, an antisocial person, uh, what creates uh, the, the impetus to commit violence among some. And um, it's not nearly as black and white as one would suspect. You can't merely dismiss somebody with the term or the designation of psychopath. Uh, there are a lot of conditions that exist genetically. You can be influenced by a certain amount of toxification through heavy metals uh, that might influence your thinking. You mentioned before a, a preverbal kind of a PTSD, Harrison. I mean, it, there are things that were affected by a, a very early stage in childhood that may go on to affect how much uh, attention we're able to, to give certain things, what our level of uh, arousal is. And, and he points to the idea that, uh, that there is a lot that occurs at a very young age that may kind of shape the, um, the behavior of a person to, to seek high levels of arousal. And what that means basically is in order to feel stimulated, in order, in order to feel alive in, in some sense, uh, you have teenagers who are acting out in certain ways, who are behaving violently, who are finding 
outlets in, in destructive behavior. So really a fascinating look at all those things. He poses a lot of good questions. I thought there was one interesting quote that suggested how he came against a uh, pathocracy uh, in the medical establishment when he was trying to put forth some of these ideas in the, in the mid-90s. Uh, he writes, In 1994, I presented my research findings from Denmark at the annual meeting in San Francisco of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I showed that a combination of birth complications interacted with early maternal rejection in predisposing babies to be violent offenders 18 years later. And he goes into, you know, he and other uh, researchers have followed the lives of people after a number of years uh, to see how they were behaving and why. So, I mean, this is, this is backed up by a lot of his research. He goes on to say, an article in Science in March that year published a figure illustrating my main findings under the headline, War of Words Continues in Violence Research. It reported my own hope that this new biosocial research could lead to, quote, feasible, practical, and benign ways, end quote, of preventing violence. Nevertheless, as science reported, it was subjected to, quote, a unified and outspoken assault, end quote, by other scientists at the meeting, who characterized my findings as, quote, racist and ideologically motivated, end quote. My sample was all white, so targeting minorities was not the issue. Instead, the findings suggested that biology worked in concert with social influences, and that was tolerable. Twelve years earlier, in 1982, I had to take a chapter on biosocial influences out of my thesis at the insistence of the external examiner in order to obtain my Ph.D., even though I had published that work two years earlier in a scientific peer-reviewed journal. So uh, this is somebody who has come right up against establishment thinking, who had to edit himself uh, in order to appease the, uh, the, the, the scientific and psychiatric gods of the establishment. And by the end of the book, he's beseeching the reader if not to completely acknowledge his data, but at least to question things, which, which seems to be what he was at fault of doing, uh, just questioning things, and got accused of, of being ideological, when in fact it seems as though the, the real people who were ideologically possessed were those who were accusing him mm-hmm. of, of being ideologically possessed. They were projecting their own biases on his on his science, on his studies. So that's really fascinating. Uh, there's another, um, another interesting bit in here where he discusses neurofeedback and biofeedback as a modality for, for treating antisocial behavior among teenagers and, and how successful that mode of treatment has, has shown itself to be. It's not, a, you know, it's not a miracle cure by any stretch. Uh, there's also... Um, some therapy involved, but it has clearly been very successful for some teenagers. If you'd listened to the health and wellness show of a couple of weeks ago, Gabby and Doug interviewed Valdine Brown, uh, who developed, um, I think that's his name, mm-hmm. who developed uh, the neurooptimal neurofeedback technology, which is helping a lot of people, not only people who 
who have these overt issues of antisocial behavior, but of, of people who may just experience a lot of physical pain or, or stresses. But this kind of development has been decades in the making. Jim Robbins put out a book called Symphony in the Brain, A Symphony in the Brain. And the types of resistance that neurofeedback has come against in, in the establishment is, uh, was pretty strong. The, the kind of irony of it all is, or rather a catch-22, is you, you need the scientific medical establishment to some degree to legitimize this type of technology or, or, uh, or healing. But if you have a, a lot of scientists and, and doctors poo-pooing it from the outset, then they refuse to give the money that would go into researching it and validating it and doing double-blind studies and, and all those things that in science would be required to legitimize such a research. Very interesting stuff. Highly recommended The Anatomy of Violence where he gets into, um, he gets into neurofeedback a little bit and uh, uh, just fascinating in terms of, of how long it's taken for this um, technology to finally reach its, its kind of... Um, to have its day where, where we can point at least anecdotally, but, but through a number of studies that were finally able to, uh, to occur and prove its uh, efficacy. You know, when you're discussing all of the, all of the roadblocks to psychological and biological uh, research uh, that really you know, kind of paves the way for a, a better understanding of how to treat crime and how to uh, cure you know, otherwise incurable sort of you know, disorders, brain disorders. I'm reminded of this quote from the chapter that we were, uh, the show is based on in, in Political Ponerology, where Lubachewski says, uh, we return once more to this system's peculiar psychological genius, in quotes, and its self-knowledge. One might admire how the above-mentioned definitions of psychopathy effectively block the ability to comprehend phenomena covered therein. And I know that we're not talking about a pathocracy, but we're talking about something that is, it seems like it's an embryo of mm -hmm. this attempt to shut out this knowledge or to prevent this knowledge and this awareness by people who you otherwise would think would be um, it would be their job <laughs> to analyze these this data and so again like what I said it's a peculiar psychological genius that he discusses and that it seems like we you know we come up against time and time again when we're we're reading about the, the all the strange resistance against understanding psychology in all of its aspects mm-hmm well, you know, you, you grow up in the West, and I, I thought about this a lot. You, you, you go to school, you, uh, you take classes in math, science, English, uh, social studies, home economics, physical education. There's very little to nothing that gets into how we think, uh, how we come to understand ourselves, emotions, just at a very basic level. You know, it's not until college that you might take a psychology 101 class that doesn't even really you know get into a, a lot of these topics so right off the bat the the west has been neutered it's been deprived of psychological knowledge of self-knowledge uh unless you personally have an interest in in reading books about psychology or self-help or or truth there's nothing there 
I think this, what was the quote, Corey, this, uh, this clever genius? Mm-hmm. Peculiar this, psychological, quote-unquote, genius. It, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's for decades, by virtue of its eliminating or taking out of the equation these topics as a very subject for study at an early age, it's completely Machiavellian in a sense. Don't even broach the subject. It's not worth thinking about unless you're taking a 101 class in college, unless you're going to pursue psychology as a major and, and go into, you know, the field. So, uh, And then you're going to have to brave all sorts of assaults. on the, If you want to actually do the research you want to do, you're going to have to become tenured and 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 with and risk uh, losing your professional reputation. Uh, Lobachevsky wrote that you know under these kinds of conditions, people just become morally derailed. He says, you know, I mean, a, a lot of people just it's easier to just go with what's easy, you know, and just take the easy route and you know do the research that is going to get you paid and that is going to enable you to ha- live a, a comfortable life. And I mean, there's nothing, you can't say that anything wrong with that. Not everybody can, you know, be become heroic, but that produces uh, this wasteland for people who just, you know, they have to work in isolation a lot of times in order to, to produce this knowledge. So the fact that we have these, these books, you know, the, and the information that we do is thanks to you know, warriors really in and within these professions who who went, you know, through a lot of uh, risky uh, situations in order to get it to us. Well, and I think that a lot of what we have today, well, it's a sign that our our society hasn't completely gone to hell yet. The fact that these people have been able to do this kind of research. And if we just look at the example of Robert Hare, who followed the work of Hervé Cleckley in the study of psychopathy, he has managed to bring psychopathy to such a level of prominence that his psychopathy checklist is used in court systems all over the world, not only in North America. And he has published um, bestsellers in you know popular accounts of what psychopathy is. And Adrian Rain, like this research is going on, and it isn't like we are not in a system that destroys this kind of research before it even comes to well even before researchers are able to to begin research on it let alone get it published well by the same token it's fascinating to see these other kinds of forces at work that that are in distinction or contradistinction to the work of uh hair and rain and and cleckley well i think a lot of that comes down to just the way science works like science is a very clique based phenomenon where there are paradigms that are abided by the the majority of the people in the field and we see these swings back and forth like it used to be in the psychiatric community that all mental illness was seen as hereditary and passed on congenitally from father to son and and daughter and there was a reaction against that well that was the the nature perspective and then the nurture perspective took over and we're kind of in getting into the tail end of that at least with a lot of the research that's coming about, um, like with, with rain, any time that you have a, a consensus and then people going against the consensus, you're going to get friction, regardless of whether there's like a, a hidden agenda going on. It's just the, the natural response. That's just the way scientists work, because scientists are humans, and all humans think they're right and think their perspective is right, and will, will react or the vast majority will react negatively to information that contradicts their previously held paradigm of what 
it is they study because their careers depend on them being right. Otherwise, they have no legitimacy and they are worthless as human beings and as scientists in their choice of profession. So what we have today is we have access to all kinds of information, but but the society and the culture of the science that we have is not immune. Um, there is such an amount of information that it would seem to be immune because just the, 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 the inertia of all of that data, it seems like it seems hard to imagine how all of that can just be wiped off the, the face of the earth in like future bad scenarios. But there are weaknesses and there are powerful you know, forces in the universities that don't want to see this kind of thing come to to prominence. Primarily, this is coming from the Marxists in like the the humanities departments in colleges all across North America and not limited to North America. And what society in general really needs, in if we want to avoid uh, a worst case scenario, is to get more research along these lines and to get it more popularized to get it to the point where we do have educational systems in place where young people are exposed to psychological knowledge, where you learn about psychology from an early age. Like, to end today's show, I think I'll just read the first couple paragraphs of this chapter that we've been discussing in Ponderology. Um, Lobachevsky writes, If there were ever such a thing as a country with a communist structure as envisaged by Karl Marx, wherein the working people's leftist ideology would be the basis for government, which I believe would be stern, but not bereft of healthy humanistic thought. The contemporary social, biohumanistic, and medical sciences would be considered valuable and be appropriately developed and used for the good of the working people. Psychological advice for youth and for persons with various personal problems would naturally be the concern of the authorities and of society as a whole. Seriously ill patients would have the advantage of correspondingly skillful care. However, quite the opposite is the case within a pathocratic structure. When I came to the West, I met people with leftist views who unquestioningly believed that communist countries existed in more or less the form expounded by American versions of communist political doctrines. These persons were almost certain that psychology and psychiatry must enjoy freedom in those countries referred to as communist, and that matters were similar to what was mentioned above. When I contradicted them, they refused to believe me and kept asking why. Why isn't it like that? What can politics have to do with psychiatry? So I think as a final thought, we should be thinking about that thing that will never come to pass, the true Marxist communist society, where if that were to work, you know, you would think it has these things like psychological advice for youth and for people who, who just need help in their everyday lives. That should be something that is promoted and, and given to, to people um, you know, at all stages in life and for all problems that arise. And we don't have that yet in our non-Marxist, non-utopian society. But it's something I think we, that we should be striving for. And to bring it back again to Jordan Peterson, I think that's why he's so popular and why he has gotten such a big response is because he's basically providing that kind of psychological insight and knowledge to people that are thirsting for it and something that they haven't had in their lives. Like he's always shocked that just the small bit of encouragement that he can give someone can produce such, such a strong response. 
maybe this is this is like uh, the opposite of transmarginal inhibition. This is getting back to what reality should be like, where we respond to a thing of value like that in the way that we should. And but the thing is, is that that value should be provided. We should have people in our lives, um, not just Jordan Peterson on YouTube, but people in our lives that are providing support and that are guiding youths, especially through you know the vicissitudes and harsh realities of life, because life is suffering. And if we don't have a method of confronting that and guiding us through that scary forest of you know dangers, then what will we become? Not very much. So I think that's something to think about and try to instill in our lives and maybe we can do something for the next generation. <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, with that said, thanks everyone for tuning in this week and we will be back next week. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.